Welcome to the June 9th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the interaction between anti-PF4 antibodies and anticoagulants in vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Discuss the efficacy and safety of CD19-specific CAR T-cell-based therapy in B-cell ALL patients with central nervous system leukemia. And learn more about erythroid cell extrinsic factors that can inhibit erythropoiesis in adjacent cells. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled the interaction between anti-PF4 antibodies and anticoagulants in vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia by Anurag Singh from the University Hospital of Tübingen in Tübingen, Germany, and colleagues. In the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in significant suffering and loss of human lives. The deadly trajectory of the pandemic was largely changed by the approval of two mRNA-based and two viral vector-based COVID-19 vaccines. Although COVID-19 vaccines are largely considered effective and safe, reports from international databases have described a rare but serious adverse event called vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VIT, in patients vaccinated with the CHADOX1 NCOV-19 vaccine manufactured by AstraZeneca. VIT is characterized by severe thrombocytopenia and thrombosis one to four weeks after vaccination, and it carries a mortality rate of approximately 30%. Thrombotic events associated with VIT may include cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, splanchnic vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, as well as deep vein thrombosis. Serological findings in patients with VIT resemble those of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, where antibodies directed against platelet factor 4, or PF4, are detected in patient sera. It is believed that these antibodies bind to PF4 and form immune complexes, which then activate platelets via the FC gamma receptor 2A, leading to both thrombocytopenia and serious thrombotic complications. Treatment recommendations for VIT are largely based on the experience with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia due to similarities in the pathophysiology of these two conditions. Thus, VIT guidelines recommend avoiding the use of heparin for anticoagulation and instead recommend the use of non-heparin anticoagulants such as dabigatran, fondaparinux, and argatraban. However, the effects of heparin and non-heparin anticoagulants on the interaction between VIT antibodies and PF4, platelet activation, and thrombus formation remain poorly understood. In the current study, investigators aim to improve the understanding of VIT pathophysiology using an ex vivo model for thrombus formation, as well as several in vitro assays to analyze antibody binding and platelet activation in the presence or absence of various anticoagulants, including heparin, dabigatran, fondaparinux, and argatraban. The study used blood collected from patients with confirmed VIT after vaccination with CHADOX1 NCOV-19. VIT antibody-mediated thrombus formation was analyzed using a flow-based ex vivo model for platelet adhesion and thrombus formation in whole blood. 
Standard assays were used to assess the impact of anticoagulants on the ability of Vitsera to bind to PF4 and to induce a procoagulant phenotype and platelet aggregation. The direct binding of VIT antibodies to each anticoagulant was also measured. Additional assessments included IgG binding to platelet surfaces and determination of binding kinetics of antibodies using biolayer interferometry. Experiments revealed that immunoglobulins from patients with VIT facilitated an increased formation of adherent platelets and thrombi compared to immunoglobulins from healthy controls. Different anticoagulant agents exhibited varying effects on thrombus formation and platelet aggregation. The negatively charged anticoagulants, donaparoid and heparin, were found to be able to interfere with the binding of VIT IgGs to PF4, leading to their dissociation, which in turn inhibits the generation of procoagulant platelets and subsequent thrombus formation. Moreover, the inhibitory effect of anticoagulants on thrombus formation was more pronounced when IVIG was present. IVIG has been previously shown to inhibit FC-gamma-R2A-mediated activation of platelets by VIT antibodies. Fondaparinux reduced the generation of procoagulant platelets and thrombus formation, but did not affect platelet aggregation. In contrast, Argatroban had no effect on procoagulant platelets and aggregation, but it significantly inhibited VIT-mediated thrombus formation. Taken together, these data suggest that negatively charged anticoagulants like heparin can effectively disrupt VIT antibody PF4 interactions, which may make them potentially effective in alleviating the complications of VIT. These results are of interest since the use of heparin has been discouraged in VIT patients because of clinical similarities observed between VIT and HIT. However, in contrast to HIT, where low concentrations of heparin enhance platelet responses, antibody-mediated platelet activation was inhibited by heparin in the current in vitro study. In an accompanying commentary, Donald Arnold from McMaster Center for Transfusion Research in Canada notes that Singh and colleagues successfully demonstrated that heparin and donaparoid inhibit thrombus formation ex vivo, inhibit the formation of PF4 anti-PF4 immune complexes, cause the dissociation of preformed immune complexes, and inhibit platelet activation. The ability of heparin to dissociate PF4 anti-PF4 complexes is in line with the recent molecular study showing that VIT antibodies bind to the same amino acids on PF4 as does heparin. While these mechanistic data provide relevant information about VIT-induced thrombosis, Arnold cautions that the safety of heparin as a treatment remains uncertain. The possibility that heparin could potentiate platelet activation in some VIT patients, similar to HIT, has not been excluded. He concludes that even though adenoviral vector vaccines for COVID-19 have been discontinued in many countries due to safety concerns, understanding the complex mechanisms of immune-mediated thrombosis and the role of anti-PF4 antibodies in this process remains an unmet need. Next up, we'll discuss an article in Blood entitled Efficacy and Safety of CD19-Specific CAR T-Cell-Based Therapy in B-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia Patients with Central Nervous System Leukemia by Yukon Ki from the Affiliated Hospital of Zushu Medical University in Zushu, China, and colleagues. 
Relapsed Refractory B-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, BALL, in adults, has a poor prognosis after salvage chemotherapy, especially in patients who relapse with central nervous system leukemia. Chimeric Antigen Receptor, or CAR, T-cell therapy has demonstrated remarkable effectiveness in children and adults with relapsed refractory BALL, with complete remission rates of 70% to 90%. However, CAR T-cells have not been extensively studied in CNS leukemia due to concerns related to poor response and treatment-related neurotoxicity. In addition, advanced CNS disease with neurologic symptoms is considered an exclusion criterion for most CAR T-cell studies. However, a case report in 2017 reported a complete response in a patient with refractory, secondary CNS diffuse large B-cell lymphoma after CD19 CAR T-cell treatment. Neurotoxicity experienced by this patient was controllable and reversible. Since then, there have been sporadic reports of leukemia cell clearance from the cerebrospinal fluid, suggesting that relapsed refractory BALL patients with CNS leukemia may benefit from CAR T-cell therapy. In the current paper, investigators report on the efficacy and safety findings from a group of patients with relapsed refractory BALL with CNS leukemia treated with CD19-specific CAR T-cells in two clinical trials in China. The analysis included a total of 48 patients with relapsed refractory BALL and confirmed CNS leukemia, who received CAR T-cell infusion at one of five centers in China from November 2016 to April 2021. Median patient age was 31 years, with an age range from 6 to 68. 46 of 48 patients had CD19-positive BALL, while the remaining two had chronic myeloid leukemia with BALL blast crisis. 36 patients had combined bone marrow and CNS involvement, while 12 had isolated CNS leukemia. All patients had intensive prior cytotoxic chemotherapy with a median of four prior lines of treatment. Patients received either isolated CD19 CAR T-cell therapy or combined CD19 and CD22 CAR T-cell therapy. Those with high disease burden at screening received CNS-directed bridging therapy after leukapheresis. For lymphodepletion chemotherapy, all patients received 30 mg per meter squared per day fludarabine on days minus 5 to minus 3, and 750 mg per meter squared cyclophosphamide on day minus 5. Clinical response and toxicity were assessed based on clinical manifestations, peripheral blood, bone marrow and cerebrospinal fluid analysis, and diagnostic imaging. The proportions of circulating CAR T-cells in CD3-positive T-lymphocytes in the peripheral blood and cerebrospinal fluid were assessed using flow cytometry, karyotyping, qPCR, fluorescence in situ hybridization, and next-generation exome sequencing were used to identify cytogenetic and genomic aberrations. The overall response rate was 87.5% in bone marrow disease, while the remission rate was 85.4% in CNS leukemia. With a median follow-up of 11.5 months, the median event-free survival was 8.7 months, and the median overall survival was 16 months. At 12 months, the cumulative incidences of relapse in the bone marrow and CNS were 31% and 11%, respectively. Overall, the treatment was associated with a number of adverse events, 
cytokine release syndrome occurred in 90% of patients, with 9 out of 48 patients experiencing grade 3 or greater cytokine release syndrome. Also, 11 patients developed grade 3 to 4 neurotoxic events, which were well-controlled with intensive management and tended to resolve over time. The development of neurotoxicity was associated with a higher CNS disease burden. Common neurotoxic side effects included encephalopathy in 22.9% of patients, depressed consciousness in 20.8% of patients, delirium in 16.7%, headache in 14.6% of patients, and seizure in 8.3%. The expansion and persistence of CAR T-cells in both peripheral blood and cerebrospinal fluid was monitored in nine patients with a complete response after CAR T-cell infusion. All nine patients exhibited peak expansion of CAR T-cells in the first month after CAR T-cell infusion, along with blast clearance in cerebrospinal fluid. At data cutoff, seven of nine patients maintained their complete response status for a median of 93 days. Taken together, these findings suggest that CD19-specific CAR T-cell-based therapy can lead to similar response rates in both bone marrow and CNS diseases. Interestingly, the duration of remission was longer in CNS leukemia than in bone marrow disease. However, it should be noted that the study is limited by incomplete information of CAR T-cell kinetics in cerebrospinal fluid and the retrospective nature of the analysis. Therefore, additional studies of patients with high-burden CNS leukemia are needed to optimize this treatment strategy for patients with relapsed refractory ALL with CNS leukemia. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Studies in Mosaic Diamond Black Fan Anemia Patients and Chimeric Mice Reveal Erythroid Cell Extrinsic Contribution to Erythropoiesis by Raymond Doty from the University of Washington in Seattle and colleagues. Diamond black fan anemia, or DBA, is a rare bone marrow failure syndrome and the first human disease linked to ribosomal dysfunction. Clinical manifestations of DBA include moderate to severe macrocytic anemia, reticulocytopenia, short stature, and a predisposition to cancer. In more than 75% of cases, there are mutations in genes involved in ribosomal biogenesis. The most commonly mutated gene is RPS19, creating autosomal dominant haploinsufficiency of this ribosomal protein. However, it remains unclear how ribosomal protein defects and impaired mRNA translation selectively cause ineffective erythropoiesis. This lack of a deeper understanding of the pathophysiological mechanism impedes the design of effective targeted therapies leaving current patients with limited treatment options, including corticosteroids, red blood cell transfusions, or allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Previous studies have shown that the production of heme and globin is carefully balanced in normal individuals, but in DBA patients, heme production may be inappropriately high since globin chain synthesis in the ribosome is significantly reduced. Elevated levels of heme can be toxic to erythroid cells. And it has been suggested that mitigating toxic heme levels may be beneficial to patients with DBA. This group of authors recently reported a robust response in one patient with DBA enrolled in a trial of the thrombopoietin analog L-thrombopag, or EPAG, 
for patients with moderate aplastic anemia or unilineage hypoproliferative cytopenias. They postulated that this response might be due to heme depletion, given the lack of TPO receptors on developing erythroid cells, and the finding that EPAG is an extremely potent intracellular iron chelator. The aim of the current study was to test that hypothesis experimentally. The authors studied the patient who responded to EPAG in more detail and found she was mosaic for a novel pathogenic mutation in RSP19. The variant allele frequency was found to be about 25% in the bone marrow and 50% in skin fibroblasts. The patient was persistently anemic and transfusion-dependent prior to EPAG therapy, despite having many unmutated hematopoietic stem cells. Since DBA-associated anemia may result from excessive intracellular heme, leading to ferroptotic cell death, they hypothesized that the accumulated excess heme was released and inhibited the growth of adjacent genetically normal erythroid precursors. To test their hypothesis, the authors conducted experiments in a well-characterized mouse model of DBA created by haploinsufficiency of the ribosomal protein gene RPL11 and also in a second model, where the gene encoding the cytoplasmic heme export protein, FLVCR, was deleted. Both the ribosomal protein mutant mice and the FLVCR-deleted mice have ineffective erythropoiesis, macrocytosis, anemia, and reticulocytopenia. However, when marrow cells from these two models were mixed with equal numbers of normal bone marrow cells and then transplanted into new mice, the outcomes of the transplanted cells were quite different. Mice transplanted with the FLVCR-deleted marrow cells mixed with wild-type marrow cells did not develop any anemia. In contrast, the authors found that transplantation of a mixture of normal cells and RPL11 mutant cells developed a DBA-like anemia. The authors interpreted these results by concluding that the RPL11 mutant erythroid cells likely suppressed growth of adjacent wild-type erythroid cells because they released toxic levels of heme, thereby inhibiting growth of the normal erythroid cells. In contrast, since the FLVCR-deleted cells could not export heme, the co-transplanted normal erythroid cells were sufficient to normalize erythroid cell production. The authors further supported these conclusions by showing that normal erythroid cells co-transplanted with RPL11 mutant cells showed evidence of iron toxicity, while cells co-transplanted with FLVCR-deleted cells lacked any evidence of iron toxicity. The authors then asked why the original patient apparently benefited from EPAG and concluded that the original patient likely benefited from EPAG because it is a potent iron chelator and not because it stimulates the thrombopoietin receptor. The authors also suggest that these findings could potentially have important implications for gene therapy of DBA, and that they may provide insights into why deletion 5Q myelodysplastic syndrome patients are anemic, despite being mosaic for chromosome 5Q deletion and loss of RPS14. In an accompanying commentary, Lionel Blank, from the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in Manhasset, New York, notes that Doty and collaborators successfully presented evidence that excess heme generated in the DBA erythron has the unique ability to affect normal erythropoiesis. This extrinsic mechanism suggests that the level of chimerism achieved by genetic manipulations should be taken into account when considering potential gene therapy or editing approaches. He also notes that the findings of Doty and collaborators 
offer a novel perspective in DBA research and design of new therapies, which should be focused on the role of heme toxicity and its consequences in the erythroblastic islands, and not only on a block in the differentiation of erythroid precursors. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.